Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. So last night, we had John Tucker to speak to us in a webinar, and I have not had any feedback about it. We had a really good turnout. Mm -hmm. Tim says that he guesses that we probably had 150 people. Yeah, I think uh, on the participant section, I saw about 65 people and we can assume that many of those were pairs of people. So um, I would guess around somewhere between 100 and 120. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious, you know, I wonder how many people have begun to read uh, Zero Theology, whether they followed your sort of advice and read the last chapter or whether they've um, plugged through it. Even in talking to Sherry last night, she was like, I'm glad I got to hear him talk because now I feel like I can go back and sort of and read this differently. Um, How did you feel about it last night? What were your takeaways? I thought he was very personable. Mm, I I thought he he was very vulnerable in sharing his story, his biography about how he got from being a fundamentalist saved again. Christian took a detour through what he called atheism and humanism and philosophy and ended up being a religious thinker. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm an atheist Christian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Whatever that means. What I mean by that is I, I, I liked one day, one Sunday, I remember you saying, it's all in the pronunciation, atheistic. In Mm -hmm. other words, God does not command from on high what happens in the minutia of our day to day. In other words, I don't have a theistic idea that everything that happens in my life is somehow strings pulled. I really liked that idea a couple of weeks ago from progressing Christianity that maybe God is not a string puller, but the string itself, you know, that all of this interconnected web of existence is what mm-hmm. we could call sacred mystery. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, the first person I heard really come down hard on the on this was uh, John Shelby Spong. Mm-hmm. He began to write uh, years ago uh, about the need for Christianity to give up the notion of this external uh, theistic, supernatural, theistic, interventionist deity. Mm-hmm. And um, he was saying this in this in the 70s and 80s. And of course, now we shorten the phrase, I have at least, and I don't think this is necessarily original with me. Um, we've, we've moving beyond cosmological dualism. Mm-hmm. And um, whatever we mean by the sacred, which I think is everything. We just don't always see it. Um, means that we do embrace this ah theistic notion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's interesting. So to, to sort of try and hold two ideas at the same time. One, um, I am married to someone who loves comic books and specifically um, superheroes and the Marvel universe, which includes um, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, the Black Panther. So he was raised on these comic books and his uncle gave him his first Black Panther comic when he was about seven years old. Um, so as a result, our family has all sort of become enamored with the hero story. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I love watching him with Josh because he'll fill in all these details and the backstory about what he's read in the comics. But recently we've been watching a show called WandaVision, which is about um, a female superhero who can bend time, who can create time, who can sort of control the outcome of the universe. She creates out of this immense grief of having lost people close to her in some, um, in a previous superhero movie, um, what she considers a sort of perfect unproblematic world. And she's trying out of her grief to control the outcomes. And what I think it's a good analogy to is that when we believe in a God who controls outcomes, it falls apart at some point. Even the world she's constructed begins to fall apart because there's human freedom, there's human will, there's passions, there's things that emerge that just become so clear that we can't control. And that that God too is not controlling for us or the things that we think God is controlling, all of a sudden we're disappointed because something in our life has gone wrong. And so I just think that that universe that is string pulled it falls apart at some point we just it just can't be maintained and and the second thought i had and i woke up a little bit with this feeling um on some really deep level i'm connecting with what john tucker refers to as absolute grief and i had a spontaneous moment this morning and i feel a little vulnerable sharing this i was exercising on our bike and i just started to cry And I thought, I don't want to die. I have no idea why I had that thought in that moment. I'm not sick that I know of. I'm not in danger of dying from some disease. Of course, we're all headed towards death all the time. (laughs) Um, But I had that thought, I don't want to die. And the thought was, I don't want to be separate from my boys. I don't want to be separate from the people I love. Um, you know, it, it was just such a powerful, sudden thought. And that absolute grief also relates to some of the reasons that I want to live. We inherited a system, you and I, that was not of our creation. We inherited a racist system. We inherited an exclusive system. We inherited ideas about life that were really, we've learned through our aging aren't, that aren't true. And I just felt this, like, if I die, I won't be able to deconstruct that system. And yet this system is so much bigger than I am. You know, there's so much wrong, so much injustice to correct. And today I'm having a lot of grief about that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, I was wondering last night if absolute grief can relate to these things that become generational. 
you know, that I think that he meant that absolute grief is about our personal sort of relationship with death, but there's also these things like generational poverty, generational racism, generational injustice that feel also like absolute grief. How do we undo those things, you know? So um, my daily practice begins every day with the words today may be the day that I die. That's also a song today. You know, that the day the music died. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so the second line under that is that may this awareness inform how I live this day. Yeah. And, you know, I started to say last night, and, and I, I know that we recorded the webinar, and <clears throat> Tim Leatherwood, thank God for Tim Leatherwood, um, he's got so much on him right now because we're entering uh, the last part of Lent and the Holy Week and all that stuff. Um, so when he gets a chance to put it up, I want to listen to it again. I started to say to John Tucker last night that uh, he's very Buddhist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you read the book over and over again, he uses words, the words compassion, mm-hmm. the words freedom, mm-hmm. the words joy, um, justice. Yeah. They're over and over and over in his book. And so between this void that was before we were and the void that is after we will be, mm-hmm. then we have this responsibility to live our lives according to some set of values and and um, to create a community that... Um, supports those values and spreads them. Yeah. And, and and I, I didn't know, I don't think I said this well last night, but um, in, the, in the Q&A, uh, if, if we had dipped down in the early, what's called the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, in the first three and a half centuries, there would have been no doctrine. There would be no doctrine whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, there were, <clears throat> there were, affirmations of uh, their belief in in new life. Uh, He's risen. He's risen indeed. Actually, the the early Christian first creed was Jesus is Lord. Hmm. What bound those people together was their joy and their their support of one another, particularly when they were being persecuted, as John said last night. So... um, I, it, it, when he talks about living the liberated religious life, he's talking about a willingness to go beyond doctrine. Mm-hmm. And and if you notice, even to this day, this is what what trips people up about religion. Yeah, we want we want the we want the strings to hold on to, mm-hmm. and as opposed to sort of learning how to be the strings. And I I did think you know that it is interesting his move through the chapter around original sin, which to me is probably the most dense chapter in the book, um, and one that I would love to tease out a little bit more. 
this idea between what we woke up to in the myth of Adam and Eve was from human being to human doing. Mm-hmm. We, we suddenly became anxious about what it meant to be human. And when you talk about the early Christians, it, it makes me imagine a more of a being community. How do we be in life together? And then we imposed doctrine on it and became doing. This is what you do to have right faith. And, in, and this is the trajectory of everyone's life. We are born a being. We are responsive to our environment and um, we, we start to develop personality based on our responsibility. And then we learn to do. We get out of that being stage. We get out of that sort of like sensory stage, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we go into doing. And then as if we enter a wisdom path, then we're trying to get back to being, but with a little bit more awareness, with consciousness, rather than just that sort of sensory mode. Mm-hmm. And and it's, I, I did you read... Um, the Center for Action and Contemplation daily meditation this morning about, about this circle, the endless mm-hmm. circle. And then even though they're talking about this kind of Celtic idea of, of the, those who welcome you beyond life, mm-hmm. the circle is ever present in our life too, from being to doing back to being, from being to doing back to being, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's fascinating. Well, the, the, the myth of the creation story, particularly the Adam and Eve part, was created to explain death. Yeah. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, the myth is we would live forever. Yeah. And then the Jews never appropriated this idea, but the followers of Jesus created this, um, when you die, you go to heaven theology. And um, that's an escape hatch. So that, you know, a lot of Christianity has been really uh, kind of an escape plan for the next world, which allows us not to pay much attention to this one. Yeah, it keeps us in deep denial. And I think that to me is the, the... the, the nuts and bolts of John Tucker's book was about shedding these layers of denial that keep us from living an authentic, liberated life. Right. And one of the things of denial, I, I was just reading, <clears throat> um, and I love this collection of essays by James Baldwin called The Price of the Ticket. Um, I asked for it for my birthday a year ago, and it, it's in limited print. In fact, I think all of them are just used by now. Um, but you know, one of the, one of the things about um, denial is that we don't pay attention to our history and how it informs what's happening now. We don't pay attention to the doctrine and how it informs what we believe now. So this, so I'll relate it to us going through the Lord's prayer line by line. And I said last weekend, I don't think I've ever done this, just really spent this much time letting the spaces be filled between each line of the Lord's prayer. And it helps us to understand the doctrine so that it may inform our now. James Baldwin wrote something about people believing that they deserve their history in some way. So the way he's writing about this is white folks in America believe somehow that we deserve our history, but we have a strong lens of denial about our history because the 
that we, the history books favor us. So somehow mm-hmm. we believe that we deserve that favor, mm-hmm. you know, and then the self-fulfilling prophecy of, of those who have been marginalized or historically oppressed also begin to believe that somehow they deserve their history. And what he's saying is, no, we just need to learn to tell the truth about it. We just need to learn to deal in truth so that that denial doesn't eventually kill us. And I'm going to read you a passage that really stuck out to me. Obviously, I'm speaking as an historical creation which has had bitterly to contest its history, to wrestle with it, and finally accept it in order to bring myself out of it. My point of view certainly is formed by my history, and it is probable that only a creature despised by history finds history a questionable matter. On the other hand, people who imagine that history flatters them, as it does indeed since they wrote it, are impaled on their history like a butterfly on a pen and become incapable of seeing or changing themselves or the world. This is the place it seems to me most white Americans find themselves impaled. Wow. (laughs) You know, I mean, when we maintain that history or that religion is to work for us, We live in denial and we are unable to attain freedom. And somehow these thoughts are weaving together for me in the wake of listening to John Tucker. I think that until recently, and I'm not sure what I mean by recently, maybe back in the 60s, Hmm. uh, all of history has been written from the standpoint of the winner. Mm -hmm. And so... When people like James Baldwin and um, I'm blocking on black theology, James Cone, James Cone, yeah, Martin Luther King started doing their yeah. work, then mm-hmm. we had this thing called liberation theology come mm-hmm. into being. And now <clears throat> all of a sudden, history is being written by some of these people from the standpoint of people on the margins. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I, I still want to tease this idea out a bit. The margins are not a place of victimization. I'm borrowing from Bell Hooks here. She says the margins are where freedom happens. The margins are where resistance happens. Um, this one writer on the philosophy of liberation, Enrique Dussel, he's Argentinian. And, you know, Latin America really is sort of the frontliner of liberation philosophy and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he says that on the margins, what he calls the periphery, because it's often ignored by the center, they are, the margins go into non-being. Also a very Buddhist idea. And non-being, we become free. We, we become free to resist because the expectations of the center fall away. And so what he's connecting with and what Bell Hooks is also connecting with is the enormous freedom that is possible on the margins because it can always be a place of resistance. Mm. So um, I've written... Um, maybe... And also expansion, right? Sorry, the, the edges expand. Right. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So I've written maybe three sentences for Sunday. <laughs> Great. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> we'll start with that. I haven't written approximately zero. 
<laughs> and the first sentence is, um, I wish I had preached more comfort. Hmm. And that is a line from an interview that was given by a pastor back in the day when there were people who were great, like Harry Emerson Fosdick and other people. He had served a church for something like 40 plus years. He was very beloved. And they were going to have this big retirement celebration for him. I'm going to try to find his name before Sunday because it's a true story. Mm. I mean, all the stories I tell are true. <laughs> Some of them have not happened yet, but they're all true. That's right. <laughs> so uh, they were going to have this big celebration. And, and this reporter from the local paper went and interviewed him. And said, as you look back over your ministry, um, do you have any regrets? And the man thought for a minute. He said, yes, I wish I had preached more comfort. Mm. And I really can understand that because I, um, I look out and see the pain that exists in the world. And my almost reflexive reaction is to get pissed off mm -hmm. and want to go after those who caused the pain. Sure. And, and, and that's not preaching comfort. I mean, we're, we're recording this um, podcast on the eve of the jury selection or in the midst of the jury selection for the man who murdered George Floyd. Yeah. And I have this incredible anxiety Me too. that we're going to have the same scenario come down, mm -hmm. even though we saw with our own eyes, this man murdered George right. Floyd, he's going to get off. That's the anxiety for sure that many of us who are, who are attuned to um, justice are feeling. And, and by justice, I am not saying eye for an eye, but I am saying accountability. And the more that we continue to let off those who are employed to protect for not protecting, the more we erode that idea that they're, that, that they're there for our safety, you know? So, so let me just jump in and say to those listening that um, we've come up with a title for Sunday that's both sides of the coin to uh, comfort the afflicted, I really think is a major responsibility for the community of empowerment. But it's also a responsibility to afflict the comfortable. Yeah. What did um, uh, John Tucker call that? Reverse synonyms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're using kind of a reverse synonym. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that really this sort of where I believe that you probably align with John Tucker and I don't want to speak to you for you. So I'm guessing here, feel free to correct. And what for sure speaks to me about reading and, and sitting with him is the embracing of paradox. Um, and I found him looking at his face, um, being with him in conversation, just so much more, um, real and personable and embodied than I could have experienced in his book, which is quite a heady book, mm -hmm. even though it's also sort of a life journey. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I just really appreciated that the paradox is incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you um, take away all the anxiety management systems that we have in our culture to get down to the core of what's really going on in the human animal, um, that does feel very vulnerable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yesterday was my dog's birthday. <laughs> and um, we're, we'd, I don't, I am not a person who, um, like he just looked up at us. Who me? Um, <laughs> uh, I am not a person who makes cakes or does special things for my dogs on their birthday. I don't have doggy birthday parties, not dismissing anyone who does. It's just that I have children to tend to and not just dogs. Um, but, you know, I surmise that my dog had no idea it was his birthday. Maybe some cellular memory of his remembers being born from his mother with eight other pups. You know, I, I don't know, but but what, what's for certain, what is probably almost definitely for certain is that he's not lying around thinking about death. He did not spontaneously burst into tears this morning with the thought, I don't want to die. Right. You know? And this is this he so he's a being, you know, he does a lot of things. He barks at other dogs out the window. He uh, wags his tail and comes over and sets his head in my lap and nuzzles me with his nose to make sure I pet him. He does things, but he's just being a dog. Right. You know, and I don't really wish for us to lose our intelligence and our creativity and our invention and our ability to think through problems in such a way that we can learn something like black holes or, um, you know, universe expansion. I, I love the creativity of the human mind. Mm-hmm. I love that we can make beautiful things. And those may be ego attachments. I don't wish to give those away, but I surely long for them to be freed, to be liberated from the anxiety about about death, about what does it mean to contribute to this world? You know, I mean, so there's gotta be some balance between absolute being and doing nothing and absolute doing and trying to do everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? You know, um, Kathleen Singh, mm-hmm. who wrote this really important book on dying called The Grace and Dying, and who was gonna come and be with us. And then she got a catastrophic, she told me, she said, I just got a catastrophic diagnosis. I will not live much Mm -hmm. longer. And she didn't. But there is a book that Kathleen Singh wrote. And I'm not sure where in the um, chronology of her writing this book comes. It's not an easy, it's another not easy read. It's called uh, Unbinding. Unbinding. I have not read Unbinding. That. And mm-hmm. it is her take on the uh, Four Noble Truths in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And unbinding is another way of talking about what John Tucker talked about in his book in the last night about absolute religious freedom, the freely chosen religious life. And that that religious life is, is marked by not being bound. Yeah. 
and not being bound by the the anxiety of death. Mm-hmm. We are going to die. Mm-hmm. Have a nice day. <laughs> All right, that about sums up our podcast. <laughs> well, no, it is about it, it about sums up what we what we're trying to teach and how we're trying to live. That right. in light of the fact, in spite of the fact that this is inevitable for everyone, how do we live? Yeah. And um, I've been, as you know, on the faculty of this um, Bible teaching, we've been teaching the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. You're going to die. Don't waste any time. Don't try to hang on to youth. Don't become a sullen, sour old person. Enjoy this moment, seize the day kind of thing, Mm -hmm. because you don't know. Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, part of seizing the day, finding joy, being in the moment, I mean, this, this again is the balance. Yes, it's a great idea to have enough money in the bank to be able to pay next month's mortgage. Yes, it's a great idea to put gas in your car so you don't run out of it in the middle of the road. And, you know, it, it, you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, God will provide. Well, planning isn't all bad. <laughs> and seizing the moment, being in joy about the moment is also being able to sit with moments like the moment I had this morning. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm not meaning to keep returning to that, but it was just, I, the first thing I wanted to do was to sort of swallow my tears. And then I just sat there or I actually was still pedaling and I'm just weeping. I just was like, I just got to let this come. So sometimes being in the moment, there is joy in connecting with our deepest feelings too, you know, and, and it's being able to be, to see that as a moment of joy mm-hmm. or expansion Mm-hmm. I think that also can help us arrive into freedom, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, because um, one other aspect of denial is that, is that we must always be happy. We must always be fulfilled. I realize any of these words could be teased apart, but I think joy is knowing that we can't always be happy. Try that on for a second. <laughs> Yeah. You know. yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, I think one of the, the one of the regrets I have in coming up with the things that I said were the foundation of ordinary life is that one of them was that we had this moral obligation to be happy. Mm. And um, I'm not going to take that back. No. I just have to redefine the words. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so that it makes sense. But uh, I think that if one of the things that I got in the conversations that I had with John Tucker before last night, the ones that I had on, on Zoom, on the phone, and, and also last night, is that he's a happy guy. Yeah, I seem so. He, he's he's um, a genuinely happy, at peace guy. And he, I asked him, um, since he's in the Methodist system, if, if he ever thought about... Um, being a pastor. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't want to do that. I want to be a religious thinker. And uh, I'd like to help 
get his message spread around, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's interesting too. I thought uh, he's obviously deeply rooted in philosophy and, and that was definitely a direction I wanted to go with him last night, but I thought we'll lose our audience if we get into some philosophical um, <laughs> circle of thinking. Um, because speaking of circles, so much of philosophy is just that. Um, but I, I thought about how he was just so willing to sort of suspend, um, to suspend knowing. He also was very sure that what he was doing was theology and philosophy. He was not, he was very clear about not trying to bridge science and theology. Mm. You know, and that's such a buzzword right now, this kind of how do we bring science and spirituality together? Um, so I thought, I thought that was interesting. He, he's, he's like, religion is its own category. It's, 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 it's an ethical question. It's a um, theological question. It's, um, it's, a, it's a question about how we shall live. Whereas science is, is not that. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think that, that one of the risks that you and I um, take or have <clears throat> are open to, one of the pitfalls that we are open to, is that of scientism. Mm-hmm. Because the 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 opposite of fundamentalism in our time is scientism. Yeah, it's the belief that science is the theology of the day, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. I think science needs to be paid attention to and taken seriously, and all of that. Um, but there is this other <clears throat> other thing. John Tucker calls it philosophy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stick with depth psychology mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's the arena that makes the most sense to me. Mm-hmm. I think that I've got an agenda that will last me however much longer I live. Um, just trying to deal with that. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that philosophy gave way to depth, depth psychology as a field. You know, I think that that really they're all interrelated. And, you know, the one thing that I don't want to lose the thread between sort of science and spirituality, however, is, is wonder is in, is in this idea of wonder and then participating in that wonder. We can participate in that wonder through spiritual practice, through engaging with it in poetics, engaging with it with art, etc. We can also participate in that wonder through pursuing a, a, thre- a strain of thought. You know, think about the wonder that Einstein, one of the great cosmologists of our time gave us in, in, in finding out that the universe was expanding in all directions all the time. That came from a place of wonder, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Newton pondered apples. <laughs> Why do apples fall from mm-hmm. the tree? Why don't they float off? Right. Mm. So I just think wonder is that space, that numinous space where science and spirituality do overlap. And we can stay in that field and not get too far into scientism and too far into spiritualism. So for for people who've not read and may not read John Tucker's book, um, one of the metaphors that he uses is the 
fable fairy tale of the princess and the pea yes yeah. And um, I'm assuming everybody knows that story. And Tucker is saying that doctrines, religious doctrines, are the mattresses that we use to protect us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of those doctrines, one of those mattresses is God has a will for my life. Yeah. It's not the only one, yeah. but it's the one we're going to deal with Sunday. Yeah. Um, and all we need to do is to find that will and we'll be safe. We'll be free of anxiety. <laughs> or we can ascribe everything that happens to the will of God and then we're off the hook. Yeah. Of taking Which reduces personal responsibility. <laughs> I think I just took the words out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, That's it goes same. back to the WandaVision analogy, too. It's like she, as soon as she tried to have a will for everything, it fell apart. It fell apart. So I saw the stars okay. of WandaVision interviewed on Stephen uh -huh. Colbert. Is it worth watching? I think you must appreciate superhero stories if you want to watch it. And there is some prehistory and context that's helpful to know if you do decide to watch it. Um, I, I think it's hard as a standalone. There's no reason not to. It's just, I think it, it, it's so much richer if you engage with that sort of superhero world. And I am married to a guy who really still engages that part of his imagination. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that's wonderful. I love, I love the stories. Yeah. Um, the demographic that I'm in, I don't think anybody is writing uh, TV scripts for uh, or movies for right now. So what I am enjoying watching at the moment is a series that was modeled after a series that Carl Sagan did, watching Cosmos. Yeah. With Neil yeah. deGrasse. Yeah, my Isaac. kids have been watching it. They it, love it. <laughs> it is really, really yeah. well done. Yeah, it's excellent. You know, here's another cosmologist who is a scientist who helps us wonder. And um, you know, my kids are now fond of saying, I'm not touching you. It's just our atoms rubbing together. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's a beautiful series and I highly recommend it. Well, I'm so glad we had John Tucker last night. I'm glad that his book has been introduced to us. Um, another way to help us hold paradox and live in the mystery, live in the in-between. <laughs> so right. I'm not yeah. uh, tipping anything when I say this, but I got an email from John this morning. Mm -hmm. I got one last night too, mm -hmm. thanking us for having him. He had a good time. Okay. And um, I, I thought it went well. As I said, I haven't gotten any feedback except what you and I have talked about. Sherry liked it a lot. And mm -hmm. John and uh, Tim liked it. Tim said it was very good, very interesting presentation, all mm -hmm. that. So I think I think it went really well. So I got an email from John last night. And then this morning, he paid us the highest compliment. Mm -hmm. He said, I would like to replicate ordinary life in this part of the country. Cool. He Give said, him the Zoom link. <laughs> he, he said, he said, you know, this is where Marcus Borg was from. I don't think I knew that. I thought yeah. he was a Midwesterner. No, no, no. He's from Oregon. His wife's a 
um, Episcopal priest, I think. I thought he was. And it is in that yeah. part of the world that the Jesus seminar has its roots. Huh. And he said, I'm thinking of trying to figure out a way where I can replicate ordinary life in this part of the world. Well, we should put together our imaginations and think about how we could show up with him on the West Coast sometime. I mean, that's exciting. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to do that. I'd love to do that. I'm yeah. a, I haven't emailed him back, but I will I will do that. Um, I'd love to be part of that little brain trust. So Okay, all right, you're, you're, you're in. As I said to him last night, is that, uh, you know, I listened to a sermon that he preached on YouTube several years ago, which is really good, mm. I thought, very moving. And then I read the book twice, made extensive notes, and um, talked to him on the phone several times. And I really feel like I, I, he's a he's a friend, you know, somebody yeah. that I want to spend more time with. So the possibility of being able to pull something off like that was just good. Yeah, that's awesome. No, yeah. he definitely is a personable, personable man. And just really glad that we our worlds are now intersected and that we yep. get to sort of think through this yeah so sunday we're going to um comfort the afflicted i hope you bring some kind of coin trick why but, well you said it's two sides of a coin oh oh, oh. okay i've planted it go find it <laughs> two sides of something yeah yeah well okay. we'll we'll keep meddling through this and um you know, hopefully we'll, we're helping each line of the Lord's Prayer breathe a little bit and coming together. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Bye.